The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 40. We will look at verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. The New Testament reading is Luke 2, 22 through 40. That is the sermon text, Luke 2, 22 through 40. The title of today's sermon is The Consolation of Israel. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us go now to Luke 2, and we will read verses 22 through 40, our sermon text for today. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, that is Joseph and Mary, brought him, that is Jesus, the babe Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four, 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to who all to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I wonder if you remember the story of the birth and early life of Samuel that old covenant prophet named Samuel. He was a prophet who ministered to Israel under the old covenant, who anointed Israel's first king, Saul, and then King David after him. Are you familiar with that story, this prophet Samuel? Uh, The fact that he would be blessed to anoint even King David? Well, do not forget about the story of his birth and his early life. It is told in 1 Samuel 1, Samuel was born to a woman named Hannah, who was previously barren. She prayed to the Lord and asked for a son. And she made a vow that if she had a son, she would give him to the Lord by bringing him to the tabernacle, also called the temple in this text, to serve thereafter after he was weaned. And all of this happened miraculously. Hannah conceived and gave birth. And after the boy was weaned, She brought him to the tabernacle to give him up to the Lord's service. When Hannah gave him to the Lord, she sang a song. It is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 2. And we have already noticed in our study of Luke's gospel that the song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang, as recorded in Luke 1, 46-55, was very similar to the one that Hannah sang those many hundreds of years earlier. We have already concluded in our study of Luke that Luke wants us to connect the stories of the birth of Jesus to Mary with the birth of Samuel to Hannah. Samuel was born to a barren woman, which is miraculous. Jesus was born to a virgin, which is, of course, even more of a miracle. Samuel was a prophet who served at the tabernacle in the presence of the priest Eli and was called by God to anoint the first king of Israel, Saul, and then the greatest king of Israel, David. But Jesus would not merely serve at the temple. He was the fulfillment of the temple. And consider this, Jesus was not merely a prophet ministering amongst priests who anointed earthly kings, No, Jesus is the anointed one of God, the Messiah in whom Samuel hoped. He is the prophet of God, the great high priest of the new covenant, and the king, the promised son of David, whose throne and kingdom will have no end. Samuel was a very significant figure. He was a great prophet, closely associated with the temple, the priesthood, and the Davidic kings. It is no wonder then that Luke wants us to make a connection between the birth of Jesus the Messiah and Samuel the prophet, for Samuel was a type of the Christ to come. And I mention all of this now because the passage that is before us today here in Luke 2.22-40 mirrors the story that is told in 1 Samuel 1.24-2.26. We will not take much time to 
discover all of the points of contact, but consider these three points of contact. One, just as Hannah took the boy Samuel to present him at the temple uh, to the Lord and to offer sacrifices so that Samuel might appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. That is a quote from 1 Samuel 1, 22 and 24 through 28. So too, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. That is Luke 2, 22 through 24. Two, just as Samuel was received at the temple by a priest named Eli who was advanced in years... So too, Jesus was received, and by that I mean recognized and prophesied over, at the temple by two who were righteous, devout, and advanced in years, Simeon and Anna. Three, the two texts make the same remark regarding the ongoing development of Samuel and Jesus. Of Samuel it was said, And the boy grew in the presence of the Lord, that is 1 Samuel 1, or 2.21, and then again, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That is 1 Samuel 2.26. And of Jesus it was said, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That is Luke 2.40. So I trust that you are able to see the points of contact between the Hannah Samuel story, as recorded in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, and the Mary Jesus story, as recorded in Luke 1 and 2. Both involve miraculous conceptions. Both mothers sing songs of praise, and the songs are very similar. Both mothers bring their boys to the temple in, in obedience to the law of Moses, and each, in their own way, offer their sons up to the service of God. In both instances... The boys are received at the temple, each in their own way, by men, and in Jesus' case, a man and a woman, who were righteous, devout, and advanced in years, who longed to see the promised Messiah. Finally, both children are said to have grown in the presence of the Lord, in stature and in wisdom. That there is a strong literary connection between these two passages of Scripture should be obvious to all. The question is, why bother to make note of these connections? And the answer is this, because Luke wants us to notice these connections. If he did not care about these connections, then he would not have written his gospel in the way that he did. And more than this, given our, brief, our belief in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, we must say that God wants us to make these connections. But again, I ask, why? What is the significance of these connections? Let us first say, that it is not simply to fill our minds with meaningless facts. 1 Samuel 1 and 2 mere Luke 1 and 2. As interesting as the fact is, we are after the meaning or significance of that fact. What does it mean? What did Luke intend to communicate when he crafted his gospel in this way? Well, he wants us to view the life and work of Jesus the Messiah against the backdrop of the life and work of Samuel the prophet. As has been said, Samuel ministered at the temple as a prophet with the priests and as a kind of king. He judged Israel after all. He did judge Israel during his life. 
In this way, Samuel prefigured Jesus the Messiah, who would establish God's eternal temple as the great prophet, priest, and king of the new covenant people of God. And do not forget that it was Samuel whom the Lord used to reject Saul and to anoint David as king over, over Israel. 1 Samuel 16.1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Did you hear it? Stop mourning over Saul. I have another king, and you are to go and anoint him. He is the son of of Jesse, I have chosen one from amongst the sons of Jesse to be king over Israel. These words found their immediate fulfillment in the anointing of Jesse's son David. He became king over Israel. These words found their ultimate fulfillment in the Holy Spirit's anointing of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Mary, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and laid in a manger. For he is the promised Messiah in whom all of these prophecies of old find their yes and amen. So the point is this. When Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this portion of his gospel, he did so in such a way so as to mirror 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And he intends for us to consider the entire story of Samuel, culminating in the anointing of David as king over Israel, and to view Jesus of Nazareth against the backdrop of this story, with special attention given to the promises made to David and the covenant that was transacted with him concerning a son who would sit on a throne and establish a kingdom that would have no end. I bother to take you through all of this, brothers and sisters, so that you might grow in your understanding of how the scriptures work. How do they function? Well, there is an interconnectedness between the old covenant and the new, isn't there? And these little stories that are told to us in the New Covenant, in the Gospel of Luke, for example, they are meant to remind us of things that were previously done, things that were previously said, which foreshadowed or spoke of the coming Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah. He is the son of Jesse. He is the son of David. He is the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. He is the prophet, priest, and king of the New Covenant people of God. With those big picture observations having been made, let us now consider the details of our text, starting with Luke 2:22 through 24. Here we learn that Jesus was presented at the temple, and it is stressed that all of this was done in obedience to the law of Moses. Verse 22 says, "And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord." I take the plural there and, and they of verse 22 to refer to Joseph and Mary. It was Mary who needed to be purified after giving birth according to the law of Leviticus 12, but Joseph was involved, given that Mary was his wife. And both were involved not only in the purification of Mary, but in the presentation of her firstborn son, Jesus, at the temple. This is what Luke refers to in verse 23 as he quotes Exodus 13, saying, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called 
holy to the Lord. This law, as it was originally given in Exodus 13, was the outworking of the Passover, when in the tenth plague the Lord killed the firstborns of Egypt, but spared the firstborns in the homes that were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And from that time onward, the Lord claimed of all the firstborns of Israel, of man and beast, as His own. There is so much typology here. There is so much pointing forward to the coming of Christ. It would take us a long time to tease it all out. But we have done this before in our study of the book of Exodus. In Exodus 13.2, the Lord says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. In Exodus 13.13, the Lord says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And what was the price of redemption that was to be paid for the firstborn sons? What was the sum of money that was to be paid so that the firstborn sons would remain with their families and not be taken in the service of the Lord at the temple? According to Numbers 18.16, it was five shekels of silver. And what was the woman to give for her purification after she gave birth? According to Leviticus 2.6, she was to give a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove, but if she was too poor, she could give two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest would make atonement for her and she would be clean. Again, that is Leviticus 12.8. And this is what Mary offered up, which does indicate, by the way, that she was poor. She did not give uh, the full offering for her purification. She gave the offering that was permitted for the poor amongst Israel two pigeons or two turtle doves, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Luke does not seem concerned, brothers and sisters, to present us with all of the details concerning these laws. Uh, You will notice that he did not even mention the five shekels that were to be paid to redeem the baby Jesus in fulfillment of Numbers 18.16. But notice what Luke does stress. Mary and Joseph, and consequently the baby Jesus obeyed the law of Moses. The phrase, the law of Moses or the law of the Lord, is repeated three times in three verses here. Christ was born under the law of Moses, and He kept it perfectly so as to redeem us from it. That is the point, I think. Jesus obeyed the law of Moses even in His infancy through the faithfulness of His parents, Mary and Joseph. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4, 5 through, 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Here is a reference to the law of Moses. He's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus kept the law perfectly for us to redeem us. This was even true of His infancy through the faithfulness of His parents, Mary and Joseph. I have two more brief observations to make concerning verses 22 through 25. One, I think it is amazing to consider that all of these laws of Moses that are mentioned here in this text, the rites of purification that Mary had to undergo, 
the burnt offerings, sin offerings, and even the temple itself had for hundreds of years pointed forward to the coming Messiah. And yet at this moment, the Messiah was the one participating in them. It is marvelous to consider when Jesus was brought up to the temple as a baby, and as he participated in all of these things through the faithfulness of his parents, Joseph and Mary, the one to whom these things pointed for generations was there. The Lord himself had come to his temple. He was the fulfillment of these things. The fullness of time had come. The Messiah had arrived. Two, I find it interesting that Luke did not mention the five shekels that were to be paid to redeem the baby Jesus in fulfillment of Numbers 18.16. Now, I do not doubt that the price was paid. After all, Jesus was not left at the temple to serve there all the days of his life as Samuel was. No, Mary and Joseph took him home to Nazareth afterwards. The price was likely paid, therefore, but the price of redemption is not directly mentioned by Luke, perhaps to stress that Jesus was set apart as holy to the Lord in a unique way. All the days of his life, he was set apart as holy unto the Lord. He served the Lord. He served the Lord's kingdom. He served the Lord's temple in a way similar to the way, in a way similar to, to Samuel. He would not serve in the temple in Jerusalem as Samuel did, for Jesus did not come as a prophet, priest, or king of the old covenant order. But there is a sense in which Jesus was thoroughly devoted to working in his father's house all the days of his life. He worked in his father's house and served his kingdom like none before or after. And I am saying that perhaps that is why Luke did not stress the price of redemption paid for him. Truly, as God's Messiah, he was devoted as holy to the Lord. Luke does not say that the price was paid for him, for he was the Lord's servant and the one who would pay the eternal redemption price for all of God's elect. He did not need to be redeemed. Therefore, though as I say, the price was likely paid in fulfillment to these laws of Moses. The main point of verses 22 through 24 is this. Jesus was presented at the temple in obedience to the law of Moses. Secondly, notice that Jesus was received at the temple by Simeon and Anna. I do love this story. It's just marvelous to imagine these two who were advanced in age receiving Jesus at the temple. Now, by received, I do not mean that he was received in the way that Samuel was received by Eli. Samuel was raised in the temple after he was weaned, and he ministered to the Lord there all the days of his life. As I've said, Jesus returned home with his parents to be raised in Nazareth. By received, I mean he was recognized as the Messiah. He was received in that sense. He was recognized to be the Messiah who was promised from long before. First, a man named Simeon recognized him as the Messiah. Again, I love this story. Not only does it add to our certainty that Jesus is the Messiah, it also helps us to see that there were some in Israel who were eagerly expecting the arrival of the Messiah in those days and recognized Jesus to be the one. You know, we are accustomed to talking about how many within Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, that theme does, does come out in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many rejected Jesus. Many of the religious leaders in those days, uh, the, the, 
the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they did not honor Jesus as the Messiah. That is true. But here in this story, we see that there were, that there were some within Old Covenant Israel, living in those days, who were longing for the arrival of the Messiah. They knew that the time was near. They knew the Scriptures. And they knew that Jesus was the one. Simeon was one of these. I think that Luke set Simeon and Anna before us so as to increase our certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. See, Simeon was waiting. Simeon knew the Scriptures. He was a faithful and devout man. He knew. So too Anna. And so... Luke sets these two figures before Theophilus and us to increase our certainty. In verse 25, we learn that Simeon lived in Jerusalem. He, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, was righteous and devout. This means that he had sincere faith in the promised Messiah, was justified by faith, and was devout in his keeping of the law of Moses. We are also told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I would like to focus on the phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel for just a moment. To console is to comfort. And you should, you should know that there are some passages in the Old Testament that spoke of a day when Israel would be comforted or consoled by their God. The Isaiah 40 passage that we read at the beginning of this sermon is one such text. Uh, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah the prophet, and he calls Isaiah to deliver this message to Israel long before Jesus was ever born, hundreds of years earlier. And what was the message? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then listen to this text. It should sound familiar to you, and you'll recognize its connection with the ministry of John the Baptist. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This man, Simeon, was waiting for this consolation. This man, Simeon, was waiting for the arrival of the Messiah who would bring this comfort to Israel. He was waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was waiting for the Messiah who would accomplish these things. Isaiah 57, 18 through 19 is another such passage concerning the one who is contrite and humble. The Lord says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This language of comfort is also found in Isaiah 66. The point is this. Simeon was eagerly awaiting the accomplishment of these things. He longed for the, the consolation of Israel. He was, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when he saw the baby Jesus, he realized that the consolation of Israel had come. In verse 26, we are told that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, Simeon was blessed to receive this special revelation from the Lord. He would not die before seeing, with his own eyes, the promised Messiah. In verse 27, 
we are told that he came in the Spirit into the temple. This means that the Spirit of God moved him in a special way to come to the temple that day. Continuing now in verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When Simeon saw Jesus, the Spirit of God revealed to him that this was the one. This was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He took Jesus in his arms and he lifted his eyes to heaven and he blessed God. And I think, brothers and sisters, we would be wise to pay careful attention to what he said concerning this Jesus His words are very significant. One, when he saw the baby Jesus, he blessed God saying, My eyes have seen your salvation. This is an interesting way to describe the baby Jesus, don't you think? My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon did not say that Jesus would accomplish salvation, though he would, but that he is God's salvation. This child, this this individual is the salvation of the Lord, according to Simeon, the salvation that God has provided. And this is indeed true. Our salvation is found in the very person of Christ. Did you hear me? Our salvation is found in the very person of Christ. Sinners are saved when they trust in Him, when they trust in His very person and the work that He has done. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, And there is salvation in no one else. Notice we are referring to a person. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is Acts 4.12. How are we saved? Through the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work. We are saved by trusting in Him. We are not merely saved by trusting in what He has done. We are saved by trusting in Him, His person and His work. When Simeon saw the baby Jesus, he knew that he was looking at the salvation of God. He was looking at the salvation that the Lord would provide, the person of Jesus Christ. Two, notice also that Simeon referred to the salvation as the salvation that God had prepared. This is the salvation that God had prepared. When did God prepare this salvation for His people? We must say that He prepared it in eternity, before the foundation of the world, according to His eternal decree. And in history, He promised it to Adam, Abraham, Israel, and David. And when Simeon saw the baby Jesus, he knew that the time had come for the accomplishment of this salvation, for Jesus is Christ. He is the Messiah the Redeemer of God's elect. This is what the Scriptures mean when they say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This salvation that Christ came to accomplish was a salvation that had been prepared beforehand in eternity and promised beforehand in time in the covenants that were made with Abraham, with Israel in the days of Moses, and with David. 
When the fullness of time had come, that phrase indicates that the redemption accomplished by Christ in His life, death, burial, and resurrection was prepared ahead of time. Three, Simeon knew that this Savior and this salvation were not for Old Covenant ethnic Israel only, but for all the peoples of the earth. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Under the Old Covenant, the promise of salvation through faith in the Messiah was largely confined to the nation of Israel. Can you picture it? Picture the earth, if you are able, in those days, in the days of Old Covenant Israel, in the days of Abraham onward to the arrival of the Christ. Was the gospel of Jesus Christ present in the world in those days? Yes, it was. Were people saved, justified, forgiven of their sins by believing this promise, the promise concerning the coming Messiah? Yes, they were. But where were these promises concerning the coming Messiah largely confined to? They were largely confined to this particular people, Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrews, and then eventually the nation of Israel after they had been brought out from Egyptian bondage. So, I want you to picture it. There is light on earth. The light of the gospel is present on earth. But it is concentrated in, in, in really one place. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. Sometimes the nations were given the gospel, of course. And that is a foretaste of what was to come. But the nations, by and large, were left in darkness. From the days of Adam to the days of Christ, the nations were left in darkness, while only a certain line, and then the Hebrew people were entrusted with the promises of God concerning the coming uh, Redeemer. One of the great differences between the Old Covenant and the New is that the gospel of the kingdom of God would go to all nations. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, not for the Jews only, but for the whole world, that is to say, for all nations. He lived, died, and rose again for His elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is the only Savior. He is the only mediator between God and mankind. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, this is the meaning of the word world when it appears in these contexts. When the Scriptures say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, or that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, 1 John 4.14, 4, these Scriptures do not teach a universal or unlimited atonement that would contradict the clear teaching of other Scriptures, such as John 10.11, John 17, Ephesians 5.25, etc. Rather, the word world indicates that God has mercifully provided salvation for all nations. This was the big news with the coming of the new covenant. The gospel of the kingdom was to go to all nations, and therefore we hear this emphasis in the New Testament time and time again. That is the significance of the word world, as it appears in these passages and others that I have cited. Christ is the Savior of all people. 
Besides Him, there is no other Savior. Indeed, all who believe in Him, from amongst the Jews and from amongst the Gentiles, will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is certainly true. And it is important to know that this was always the plan. A Redeemer was promised first to Adam. Think about that for a moment. Who was this Redeemer promised to? Not Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, but to Adam, the father of all people, all nations, descended from him. And when the promise concerning the coming Savior was entrusted to the Hebrew people by way of covenant, Abraham was told, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is Genesis 12, 13. So in the moment that God made a covenant with Abram, and set him apart from the nations, and entrusted the gospel to him and to his offspring, he made it clear that through him, through his descendants, through his son, ultimately Christ Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was revealed from the start in the covenant that God transacted with Israel, with the Hebrew people. Promises concerning the salvation of all nations through Israel's Messiah are found throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And Simeon knew it. He knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew that this salvation was not for the Jews only, but was for all people. And therefore, he referred to Christ as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He had Old Testament passages like this in mind. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Did you hear it there in Isaiah 42.6? This had an immediate fulfillment in the nation of Israel itself, but it has ultimate reference to the coming Messiah. It is the Lord speaking to the coming Messiah. I am the Lord. Hear it again. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, Messiah, I will give you, Jesus Christ, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. When when Simeon takes up the baby Jesus in his arms and refers to him in this way, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, he is saying Isaiah 42.6 is being fulfilled in our very presence. Here he is. Here is the Lord's Messiah that Isaiah was speaking about. Here He is, the light to the nations. He is here in my arms. And now the Lord can allow His servant to depart in peace, having seen the Lord's salvation. Isaiah 49.6 was also in his mind, I'm sure. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Earth. Anyone who tells you that this was a plan B, that the Gentiles be brought in, is speaking nonsense. This was plan A, and in fact, with God, there is only plan A. This was His eternal decree, that through the Hebrews, salvation would be brought to all the nations of the earth. Redemption would be brought not only to the sons and daughters of Abraham, but to the sons and daughters of Adam. You see, that was the plan from the very beginning. Isaiah 52.10 was also in the back of Simeon's mind, I'm sure. The Lord has barred, bared, excuse me, the Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see 
the salvation of our God. Isaiah 63, And nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The point is this. Simeon knew that the baby Jesus was the Messiah who has come from Israel in fulfillment to the promises of God previously made, and He came into this world to be the light, not only to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. He came to bring salvation to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. For Simeon also said that Jesus would be for glory to God's people, Israel. That is Luke 2.32. This is a reference to Isaiah 45.25, which says, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This must be a reference to the true Israel of God, and not to Israel according to the flesh. For we know that many from amongst ethnic Israel did not believe in the promised Messiah. They were unfaithful. They were, to quote Jesus, not Abraham's children, truly, though they descended from him, ethnically speaking, but were of their father, the devil. That is John 8, 44. Brothers and sisters, understand this. There is an Israel according to the flesh. That is one thing. And there is a spiritual Israel, the true Israel of God, which is what Paul refers to in Galatians 6.16. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What is his point? It is, the, it is those who have faith in the promised Messiah who are the true descendants of Abraham. It does not matter if they are Jews or if they are Greeks, if they are Hebrews or Gentiles. All who have faith, the faith of Father Abraham, are truly the sons of Abraham. And in Romans 9, 6 he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do you hear how Paul uses the same term Israel in two different ways? There is the Israel that descended from Abraham according to the flesh, but not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel, that is to say, the true Israel of God. And not all, I quote again, are children of Abraham because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul says, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It could not be more clear. There is an Israel according to the flesh, and there is a true Israel. Who are the true Israel of God? They are all who trust in Jesus the Messiah from amongst the Jews and from amongst the Greeks. In verse 30, Paul adds this, or he asks this question, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it were based on, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is Paul's point? He, he's basically saying, isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that Israel, according to the flesh, though so many with Israel uh, were zealous to keep God's law, that, that they 
have been cut off, that they have not obtained righteousness, whereas the Gentiles who walked in darkness for so long, who had no concern for, for the worship of Yahweh, they have been justified. Isn't it ironic? And, and, and why? Why has this happened? Because of this. So many within ethnic Israel pursued righteousness as if it could be earned through law-keeping. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Here's the stone that everyone seems to stumble over. They think that they can be made right with God by obedience to God's law. And yet they cannot. They can only be made obedient, uh, righteous with God, right with God, through faith in the promised Messiah who has kept God's law for us and in our place. This is the clear teaching of Holy Scripture, brothers and sisters. When Simeon said that Christ would be for glory to God's people Israel, he meant the Israel of faith, not Israel according to the flesh. For many within ethnic Israel will never see the glory of God, but those who have faith in the promised Messiah from amongst the Jews and the Gentiles will see God's glory. This is the true Israel of God, all who have the faith of Father Abraham, that is to say, faith in the promised Messiah. Five, this interpretation of this passage that I have just presented to you is confirmed by the words that Simeon spoke to Mary. In verse 34, we read, And Simeon blessed them, that is Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. Jesus divides. Jesus divides. He divides the world from the church. And within Israel, I am here speaking of ethnic Israel, He divided the true Israel of faith from the false Israel of disbelief. Jesus reveals hearts as sinners respond to Him and to His gospel, either in faith and obedience or disbelief and rebellion. Notice also the reemergence of this theme. We were told earlier in Luke that Jesus would bring down the haughty and rise up those of humble estate. That is Luke one fifty two. Here, Simeon says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, He is also the judge of the world. Those who do not bow to Him as Savior and Lord will bow to Him as judge on the last day. They will be condemned in their sins and cast away to suffer eternal judgment. From amongst the Jews and from amongst the Gentiles, the same thing is true. All who bow before Him as Savior and Lord will enter into life everlasting, but those who do not will bow before Him as judge. Notice Simeon's words to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This is a reference to the suffering that Christ would endure to atone for the sins of His people. And this is a reference to the sorrow that Mary would feel as she witnessed the suffering of her own Son and Savior. Verse 33 says, And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. This is now the fourth time that the word translated as marveled or wondered has appeared in Luke's gospel. Again, I say to you, Luke is inviting us to join with Mary, Joseph, and others to marvel or wonder over the things that happened 
in the days when Jesus Christ was brought into this world. We are to take up this gospel. We are to read what is written here. We are to believe these things in our heart, and we are to marvel over them. It is marvelous to consider all the things that God did in the days when Jesus was brought into this world to demonstrate that He was indeed the Messiah of Israel. In verses 36 through 38, we are told that there was a woman named Anna who responded to Jesus at the temple in much the same way that Simeon did. Now Luke does not provide us with the details of all that she said, but simply says, And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So she was married for seven years. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to Him, to speak of Him, to who, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So you can picture this woman. She's a devout woman, a faithful woman, given to fasting and prayer at the temple continuously as a widow. She comes to the temple at about the same time that Simeon did, and she begins to declare the same message. Uh, women, do not be offended that Simeon's words are recorded for us, whereas Anna's are not. Uh, women have been given a privileged place in Luke's gospel already. It's about time that a man gets to uh, you know, take this privileged position. But the point is this. Simeon and Anna were proclaiming the same message, both of them. They both functioned as witnesses. They received Jesus, the baby, as the Messiah. And they began to testify to Him concerning, uh, from the Scriptures concerning uh, the fulfillment of these things. The phrase, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to, who, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, indicated that others were waiting for the redemption of Israel as well. She went around and she began to speak to them, being moved along by the Holy Spirit. I think all of this is truly marvelous to consider. I, I hope that you agree with me. When Jesus was a baby, He was presented at the temple in obedience to the law of Moses, and when he was presented, he was recognized and received as the Messiah by this godly man and this godly woman, Simeon and Anna. Thirdly, in verses 39 through 40, we are told that Jesus departed the temple and grew in wisdom and stature, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a fascinating little statement here, I think. Um, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Uh, here we find another reference to the law of Moses being kept. Joseph, Joseph and Mary, and through them the baby Jesus, kept the law of the Lord. And here it is also clarified that Jesus did not remain at the temple to serve there as Samuel did, but went home with his parents back to Nazareth. Uh, Jesus did not serve at the temple because he did not come to serve the old covenant order, but to establish a new covenant into building the eternal temple, making the old obsolete. You may see Hebrews 8.13 about that. But in verse 40, here is where we read, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, is it true that Jesus is God? Is it true that Jesus is God? Yes, it is true. Jesus is God. But we must also be careful concerning the way we talk about Him so that we do it with precision. The person of Christ is the person 
of the eternally begotten Son of God. In Christ, the eternally begotten and uncreated Word, or Son of God, took to Himself a true and complete human nature. So then, united in the person of Christ is the divine nature and a human nature. There are many passages that clearly teach that Jesus is God. He is the person of the Son or the Word incarnate. Go to John chapter 1, for example. He is fully God. Go to John 8.58 or Colossians 1.19. But passages like the one we have just read from Luke 2.40 help us to remember that Jesus was truly human. Jesus grew and became physically strong in the same way that all children grow. And He even increased in wisdom, the text says. This helps us to make a distinction in Christ between the human mind and will of Jesus and the divine mind and will. God cannot increase in wisdom, brothers and sisters. I hope you understand this. Because the divine nature cannot change. Nothing can be added to God, for He is the perfection of all things. His wisdom is perfect. His wisdom is unsearchable. When Luke tells us that the person of Christ increased in wisdom, he means he increased in wisdom according to his human nature. God has never learned a thing. That might sound strange to your ears, but it is true. The Eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know all things, and they are the source of all knowledge. But Christ, Jesus Christ, learned things. Think about this. Jesus Christ learned how to count. (laughs) Wow. The eternal Son of God took to Himself a true human nature, body and soul. And in that human nature, Jesus learned to count. He learned His ABCs, if you will. He even learned the Scriptures. And I think it is safe to say that He also grew in His understanding of His messianic mission according to His human nature. Isn't it marvelous to consider? It's mysterious, but we must confess these things because the Scriptures teach them. Jesus Christ grew. He became strong physically, and He, over time, was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon Him. Brothers and sisters, Luke's objective in his gospel is to move us to greater certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And here we are presented with even more witnesses to testify concerning him. In his infancy and through the faithfulness of his parents, he kept the law of Moses perfectly, which was certainly a requirement of the the Messiah. And when he was brought to the temple, Simeon and Anna recognized him to be the Messiah. For this was revealed to them from the scriptures and by the working of the Holy Spirit. And after this... Jesus was taken back to his hometown so that he could grow physically, mentally, and spiritually according to his human nature until it was time for him to begin his public ministry about 30 years later. I must ask you by way of conclusion, do you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world? More than this, I must ask you, do you trust in Him? Do you know Him? Are you united to Him by faith, for He is our salvation. And I wonder if you can see the difference between these two things. It is one thing to be convinced in the mind that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised Messiah. It is another thing to trust Him in the heart 
and for the forgiveness of your sins. True saving faith involves the mind and the heart, friends, and it also affects the will. Paul says it beautifully in Romans 10, 8-13, and with this reading we will conclude. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, I pray you are convinced in your mind that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who was promised from long ago. More than this, I pray that you believe in Him from the heart to the salvation of your soul. And we know that all who believe in Him from the heart and mind will also call Him Lord and honor Him as such. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us trust in Him. Bow together with me now for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Help us to marvel over these things that were accomplished when Jesus was brought into the world. Help us to cherish the scriptures, to believe them in the mind, and to trust in Jesus Christ, His person and work in the heart. May we confess Him to be Lord and Savior. May we honor Him as Lord in the whole of our life. Help us now, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.